So this could be the last one in the series, or, or maybe not. Maybe one more. Heads up, I don't know what I'm saying. Um, All right, so these last few weeks we've been discovering and re-examining what the kingdom is and is not. And we are biblically trying to understand as in the days that this glorious message of the kingdom is at hand, um, what it was being preached. We saw that it was not a a new message, but rather one uh, that the Jews would have well known and been anticipating. We also saw that although there was a deposit and the kingdom is now, it's also, also something that we are awaiting at the seventh trumpet blast and will kick off a messianic reign that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. I prayerfully hope we have over the last year been establishing the understanding that our salvation and our rewards are two different inheritances and that salvation is a free gift that we can do nothing to deserve or earn. It is simply by our faith in who and what Jesus the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the King of kings, who by his atoning blood made a way for us to have fellowship with the Father. A way back, or as Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. We have, through the lens of Scripture, also seen a little of what this kingdom will look like. In reading all the, the prophecies, there's gonna, it's going to be a kingdom of peace. The nations are going to come to Jerusalem to learn the Torah. Satan is going to be restrained. There will be those who are resurrected and those um, who have lived through a tribulation that are occupying this kingdom. And we saw that many of the things that we proclaim even as promises you know, today are yet to be fulfilled. That Those are messianic uh, promises that we're proclaiming. And we spent the bulk of our time uh, last week in Isaiah. We understand that in this kingdom that is proclaimed in Revelation, that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of God. That means Jesus is still waiting to redeem fully. And at his first coming, he has given us an opportunity for personal redemption. This is an entering into the kingdom to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. We become citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. That doesn't mean that we aren't in this world, nor does it speak even of heaven. It means we have a king and we are his subjects. Practically, that looks like what we, we honor God above nationality. And so that a worldwide, he has subjects in his kingdom now. Every, everybody that has come into him is in that kingdom. And we're subjects of that kingdom. Doesn't, there's no national banner over it except for the one of Jesus Christ. So what does or what should it look like to belong in a kingdom that is not of this world? First, what makes a kingdom? A kingdom has to have a king, it has to have subjects, and it has to have laws. And we see through scripture that a kingdom doesn't necessarily have to have defined borders, uh, but it can. In Colossians 1, uh, 12 through 16, it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So there is a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. We see in Colossians that we are part of a kingdom of darkness until we come into and become citizens of a kingdom of the Son of His love through Jesus is what Colossians tells us. So who is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness? 
We know that Satan is called the prince of the air. And what is his kingdom marked with? And who are his subjects? Sometimes when I'm studying out, um, I'll find like a good article to read or uh, something that just makes it more concise. And so I'll read some excerpts out of a web, uh, something that I found online. It was the question of what does it mean that Satan is the prince of the power of the air? <clears throat> it says, uh, in, talking about in Ephesians, which I'll read, it says, in the text, the apostle describes Satan first as a prince with power because he does have authentic power in this world. And that's reference for 1 John 5, 19. Uh, I can give you those scriptures if you guys want to look them up afterwards or have them on hand if you want to do further study. This power has given, been given to him by God. That's Luke 4, 6. Satan has power over some illnesses, Luke 3, 13, 16, also 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Um, it's unknown if Paul's thorn was an illness or something else. In some sense, Satan has power over death. That's Hebrews 2, 14. The reason Satan is called prince rather than king is that there's only one king, Jesus Christ. That's 1 Timothy 6, 15. Satan also has some power over people. The sons of disobedience, referred to in Ephesians 2, 2, are those that have not trusted in the Lord. Uh, Jesus Christ is their savior. Um, those are references in Acts, 2 Corinthians, Revelation. Um, and the demons are also under his rule, Matthew 12, 24. And one of his titles is Prince of Demons, Matthew 9, 34. Satan has a kingdom, Matthew 12, 26, and he has a throne, Revelation 2, 13. If you guys remember, it says, I know your works where Satan's throne is um, in the place where the overcomers. We were talking about the different churches, the letters to the churches. Satan is called a prince because he is a ruler and possessed power to manifest evil in the world through influencing people and commanding demons. Um, and some might argue or have different thoughts on what the air could mean. Um, this whole world is Satan's dominion, Matthew 4, 8 through 9. Um, we also know that in Ephesians it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So, Although Satan has power and authority in this current world system in which we exist, his power is limited. And it's always under the sovereign control of God, Job 1.12. And it's temporary, Romans 16.20. God has not revealed all of the whys and winds concerning Satan's rule, but he has made it clear that there is only one way to escape his power and dominion, and that is through his son, Jesus. It is Jesus who, speaking of the impending, impending cross, declared victory, said, Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So in Ephesians 2.1, that's what that was based off of. It sa this says this, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedient, among those who also we all once conducted ourselves in lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. So this kingdom of darkness is marked, has qualities that marks it. It's marked by death. It's marked by the quality or the, the fruit, basically, of walking according to your own desires and being appointed to wrath. If walking according to your own fleshly desires and your own will are hallmarks of the character of this kingdom, characteristics of this kingdom, then we can also infer uh, logically, but also with a wealth of scripture, 
that I don't have to go into for this sermon, that walking according to the Spirit is a hallmark of the kingdom of God. And maybe sometime, uh, spend some time with your family or individually this week studying out the fruits of the Spirit and what it means to walk according to the Spirit. Um, and we read in Romans fourteen seventeen that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This means that we are able to abide in an otherworldly state while here among this corrupt world that belongs to the kingdom of darkness. We await a time when we will hear the seventh trumpet blast and a declaration that will shake up all the powers of darkness. And we've been kind of sitting right there, right smack in the middle of Revelation, um, in the book of Revelation. And so out of Revelation 11, it says, The seventh angel sounded his shofar. There are loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will rule forever and ever. The 24 elders sitting on their thrones in God's presence fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We thank you, Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who is and was, that you have taken your power and have begun to rule. I just want to pause right there for a second. <clears throat> have begun to rule. We're seeing a transfer of ownership here. We see a collapse of Satan's dominion and rule beginning through the next chapters when he's being cast out, as we have already read. Um, and he's becoming enraged, and he's going after the woman who gave birth to the man-child. We have seen some sort of preservation of the saints, but we've also seen a lot of martyrs and heavy persecution. Going on uh, in verse 18, The nations rage, but now your rage has come, the time for the dead to be judged, the time for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your holy people, those who stand in awe of your name, both small and great, it is also time for destroying those who destroy the earth. In cross-referencing these, um, just think about that for a moment. And, and we have this picture of these being spoken before the throne of God, of, of the seventh trumpet, and what is being proclaimed. And it's, it's the, a scene that is opening up, continuing to open up as... Even if it's not done in an instant, as we know that it says the days of the shofar, the days of the, the seventh blast, it's happening over some time. But listen to what the prophets of old said about this time. The Lord will reign forever and ever, Exodus fifteen eighteen. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, Psalm 2, 2. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Psalm 82.8. And in that day, a great ram's horn will sound, and those who are perishing in Assyria will come forth with those who are exiles in Egypt, and they will worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Isaiah 27.13. <clears throat> in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will shatter all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself stand forever. Daniel 2.44. And he was given dominion, glory, and kingship that the people of every nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel 7.14 Then the sovereignty, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom will be everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. Daniel 7.27 when I read these, I just, I truly said, praise the Lord, this kingdom is real. It is the good news that we are waiting to be fulfilled. And it's 
fullness. So now we have established what the gospel message was, um, as is this final redemption that began with the making of citizen kingdom, citizens of this kingdom now through personal redemption. As I stated earlier, we have to have a king, that is Jesus. You have to have subjects that are those are in him and can come near because of the blood. You have to have laws of the land, and that is the Torah, coming forth in teaching of the nations as prophesied in Isaiah. We also see that we are in a kingdom and are to be sanctified under the new covenant, which is stated in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Israel or the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. This is the covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Huh? That's Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through 33. In this kingdom, understanding, I'm hoping that this is starting to unfold just a little bit more, like week after week as we're starting to see that we've really added quite a bit of this in our, in our walks, in our uh, understanding. And I'm hoping that we are answering some of those who, what, where, why questions. And I've touched on some of the when, as we see the days approaching, the signs of his coming. But let me direct you to some verses that I think will give us a little bit more understanding of the when. So while Jesus was on this earth, he spoke some very harsh words to those that were Torah teachers, not because they were teaching Torah, but rather laying a heavy burden on the people with all the man-made traditions that they were adding to the Torah. In Matthew 23, we read some of this, but at the end, as he is speaking, he utters some very sad words, but very telling. I chose this version to read out of today. So um, in Matthew 23... Go, read that whole chapter, you'll, you'll see. Well, you know what? Let's just, I'll start reading. It's a shorter message anyway. Then Yeshua addressed the crowds and the Talmudim, the Torah teachers, and the Purushim. And he said, sit in the seat of Moshe, that's Moses. So whatever they tell you, take care to do it. But don't do what they do because they talk, but they don't act. They tie heavy loads into people's shoulders, but won't lift a finger to help carry them. Everything they do is done to be seen by others, for they make their to feel him broad and their tzotyot long, and they love the peace of on, uh, the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and they love being greeted uh, deferentially in the marketplaces and being called rabbi. But you are not to let yourselves be called rabbi because you have one rabbi and you are all each other's brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father because you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to let yourselves be called leaders because you have one leader and he is the Messiah. The greatest among you must be your servant, for whoever promotes himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be promoted. 
But woe to you, hypocritical Torah teachers in Perushim, for you are shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, neither entering yourselves nor allowing those who wish to enter to do so. So you see he's tying the, the kingdom of heaven verses directly with the way that they are handling the Torah. Woe to you, you hypocritical Torah teachers in Perushim. You go about over land and sea to make one proselyte, and then you succeed and you make him twice as fit for uh, Gehenna as you are. Woe to you, you blind guides. You say if someone swears by the temple, he is not bound by his oath, but if he swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound. You blind fools. Which is more important, the gold or the temple, which makes the gold holy? And you say if someone swears by the altar, he is not bound by his oath, but if he swears... By the offering on the altar, he is bound. Blind men, which is more important, the sacrifice or the altar which makes the sacrifice holy? So someone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And someone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who lives in it. And someone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and one who sits on it. Woe to you, you hypocritical Torah teachers and Purushim. You pay your tithes of mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah, justice, mercy, and trust, these are the things you should have attended to without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat, meanwhile swallowing a camel. Woe to you, you hypocr- hypocritical Torah teachers in Purushim. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Blind Purush, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may be clean too. Woe to you, hypocritical Torah teachers in Purushim. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look fine on the outside, but inside are full of dead people's bones and all kinds of rottenness. Likewise, you appear to people from the outside to be good and honest, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and far from the Torah. Woe to you, hypocritical Torah teachers in Purushim. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the Tazikim, and you say, had we lived when our fathers did, we would have never taken part in killing the prophets. In this you testify against yourselves that you are worthy descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, finish what your father started. You snakes, son of snakes, how can you escape being condemned to Gehenim? Therefore, I am sending you the prophets and sages and Torah teachers. Some of them you will kill. Indeed, you will have them executed on stakes as criminals. Some you will flog in your synagogues and uh, pursue from town to town. And so on, you will fall the guilt of all the innocent blood that has ever been shed on earth from the blood of the innocent Havel to the blood of the... I don't know the word there. Whom you've murdered between the temple and the altar. Yes, I will tell you that all this will fall on your generation. And then you guys probably have heard this verse, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Um, you kill the prophets, you stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children, just as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you refused. Look, God is abandoning your house to you, uh, to you, leaving it desolate. For I tell you that from now on you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. <clears throat> Blessed is he who came, comes in the name of the Lord. This was a, actually a quote from Psalm. It was the Psalm that was chanted during the fall feasts. Uh, they, they have different times of the year that they would um, quote certain Psalms and everything. And this was during the, the booths, the Sukkot, um, as we have talked about here. That we've also said that in his second coming, he will fulfill the fall feasts. But something else is in here. And it's the move of the spirit that we are, have been talking about. He is sadly telling this generation, you have missed it. You have rejected me, and you won't see me again until you can say that Yeshua is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see how and why the timing 
of end time events depends on the Jewish people coming to a corporate place of declaring, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I've heard a good teaching on this once where um, the minister took a little bit of a different take on it. Um, I don't think that he was going back to the psalm that, is, that Jesus was referencing. Um, but even those, when we can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If we're representing him, you can read the sentence that way too. Blessed are these ministers, these ones that are coming and speaking and declaring uh, as we are vessels. Um, that psalm, by the way, is Psalm 118. And uh, just for your reference sake, <clears throat> let's see here. Uh, psalm 118, and it's, it's a long psalm, but um, in verses... 25 through and 26, it says, Please, Adonai, save us. Please, Adonai, rescue us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. We bless you from the house of Adonai. And so many synagogues um, will build a sukkah to enable all worshipers to experience the greatest symbol of Sukkot. Special holy day services are held on the first and eighth days as required by the Torah. Um, but Sukkot is a time of joy, and there are various processionals in which the congregants march around aisles, waving palm branches and, and chanting from Psalm 118, Save us, Lord. And thus with thanksgiving, the Jewish community seeks to remember the theme of this holy day and declaring still during Sukkot, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So I've been telling you that we are living in a, a move of God. We are in a time that a strong cry is going forth and we are in a kingdom now as we are awaiting the fulfillment of that. Our lives should reflect that. We should evaluate our lives and what we reflect to the world around us. What we reflect to each other as fellow believers and what we reflect to the Jewish people who are also awaiting Messiah's coming kingdom to be established. It's time to evaluate and assess our own lives. And does the new covenant of God's Torah being written on our heart, is that manifest in my life? Am I subject to King Yeshua sitting on his throne because I have relinquished my own will and am being sanctified by his refining fire in my life and am a consecrated vessel to be used in holiness? Am I, as Jesus says, able to call him Lord? Because we've seen that there was a qualification It's not that they didn't believe in him and they didn't call him Messiah and Christ, the anointed. But he he got on to them and said, why do you call me Lord? But you don't do what I say. There's a qualifying of obedience. Am I saved but the fruit of my life is worldly? Do I show forth the qualities of the sons of disobedience as Paul says in Ephesians, following the course of this world? We are in his kingdom now and have the greatest privilege to be in this age that the spirit was poured out and have his spirit in us enable us to live and prepare for what is coming. And can you see and hear what the spirit is saying to you in this hour? I always imagine what this must look like in our spiritual standing because we serve a king um, that we can't see or hear with our natural eyes. Um, So we serve a king who seems to kind of be taken a long time to come back. (laughs) I'm sure that the disciples have been saying it and all the saints after have been saying the same thing. So I'm always drawn to movies that show knights 
and their absolute devotion to a king. And at all costs, they will protect the kingdom. He gives his own life, and it doesn't belong to him anymore. He's ready at any given moment for war. He is prepared for battle with his, in his armor, carrying his sword. He wears a ring or some sort of symbol of the king. He rides with a banner or a flag that represents the king's kingdom, and he lives with an authority from the king. We have seen many of these same visuals from the word of God even being called ambassadors. But what is an ambassador? Ambassador is somebody who speaks on behalf and represents the king. Does our life correctly represent the king and his kingdom? And what part do we want to have in this coming messianic reign? I know that we want all the juicy answers first um, as we were discussing you, you know, death and what's going to happen to us. And my dad and uh, Ellen and Scarlett were over on Wednesday and uh, we had a, a pretty long, good theological <laughs> discussion, you know, coming from all different perspectives and stuff. I want those answers too. And we'll continue in, in searching out the scriptures and probably having to readjust some of our, our doctrinal stances and theology. Um, you know, we do know that we're going to be resurrected. We understand that as believers. You know, what's going to happen to us when we die? And, and like I said, although I desire to know those, I think the more important answers are not what is going to happen when we die, exactly, because we know that we're going to be resurrected. The more important is not about dying, but rather about our living now. Are we living as kingdom citizens right now? I recall a little saying that was going around some time ago. It said, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Say that again. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I'm not just speaking to myself and to the adults here. I'm talking to you children. Do people know that you're a Christian by your behaviors and your actions and the words and what comes out of you? The church has been operating with a lot of grace and no Torah. And the other imbalance is Torah and no grace. It's not either or. It's both and. God is bringing that balance back to us. The westernized church age has moved so far away from this balance in the name of grace and love that we are beginning to lack any sort of holiness. Any sort of being truly set apart and consecrated by what the Bible tells us is sanctified and set apart, not by what we say it is. We have been operating so much under grace and love, which is true in part, but he gave his life for us. He suffered so that we may live in him. We should be living fully in this time, knowing we are not even guaranteed tomorrow. I know that a lot of times we talk about, you know, what's going to happen when Jesus returns, and am I going to be alive? Am I going to be martyred or anything? But we are not guaranteed tomorrow. So our end days are now. Like, <laughs> we're in them, each and every one of us. <clears throat> we should make our days count. So if there's need of repentance, repent. It says, since that was the kingdom message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you guys know what the phrase to glorify the Lord? We say it, we sing it in songs, and it, sometimes we say things so much that it just becomes like the Christianese, like, oh, magnify his name, glorify the Lord. And we kind of lose a meaning of what those things even mean. 
Um, it means to correctly represent God to the world. To glorify him means to correctly represent him. Do we correctly represent him? In this season, as we are studying, I urge you to ask yourself a question. What am I known for? This is a question each of us in this room can ask ourselves, children and teens included. What are you known for? This can be a hard moment of truth. It can be humbling and revealing. It can also be encouraging. This isn't to take away uh, anything from our individuality or the calls and the gifts that God has given to us and that how those calls and giftings can be used as uh, pathways for other people to, to get to know him. <clears throat> but in some form, I strive to be known for boldly, uncompromisingly loving and living for the Lord. I don't want to be simply known for being nice or having a good work ethic or being hospitable. Those are good things, godly things that we should strive for, we must strive for. But I've also been known for being nice, giving a good mom. In fact, I had a family member's uh, wife, a cousin of mine's wife, ask me if I would take their kids when they, if they died. And it was kind of an out-of-the-blue question because it's not like I even have a relationship with these people. Um, and so I was kind of astounded and, and taken back by it, and I, I told her I would have to you know, think about that and, and pray. That's really big, you know? But then she said that one caveat was that she, although she respects my Christian beliefs, I can't raise her kids that way. And that um, it's fine that you're Christian, but you know, I need my kids to be exposed to whatever it is they want to learn, and um, we're more Buddhists than anything else. <clears throat> so how difficult it was as I was flattered that she would even ask me such a really big deal. And I didn't want to hurt her feelings. I didn't want to put her off. I wanted to be nice, or what she would consider just being nice. But I had to let her know I could never do that. As I'm not simply following a, a religion, nor can I separate it out of my life somehow. At that point, by her standard, I was no longer considered nice or loving. You see, it wasn't until I was pressed on stances that disagree with the Bible that I was then considered maybe a homophobe, a fanatic, a racist, a hater. Why? Because anyone can be nice. I want to be known as a soldier of the cross, an ambassador of the King of Kings, a devoted, set-apart, convicted, used for his holy purposes, give my life up for the King who reigns and is coming again, servant of the Most High God. And we're not there, but all of us should pray for that desire in our hearts. Let me close. Father, as we open up for discussion, we ask that your spirit lead us we thank you, Father. Let us truly not just take what is heard today and, and just leave it and go on with our lives, but that you would stir our spirits to ask and to evaluate, what am I known for? Lord, if there's changes that are needed, 
Oh, Father, you are so gracious. And your spirit is in with us. And so that your spirit of truth can speak those things to us. Oh, but Father, that our hearts would be humble before you. Lord, I lift up these children in this room that they are being raised in such precarious times that they would care, that you would stir their spirits. Lord, they wouldn't think that it was until they wait until they're grown up to, to show forth the kingdom message and to glorify and to correctly represent you. Lord, that each one of us would not follow after the course of this world, which is the easy thing to do. But knowing that it matters, that we would desire and we would allow you to refine us and to sanctify us and to consecrate us and that we would be a peculiar people and be okay with that. And that we would desire your approval more than man's. In Jesus' name, amen.